24. Well, take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to uh, John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And I want to bring a message today entitled, The Greatest Love Story Known to Man. The Greatest Love Story Known to Man, John chapter 3. And let's pick up reading at verse 16 And we'll read all the way down through verse 21. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's word, please? The scripture says here, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray together. Father, as we walk around the malls this year, and we search for that perfect gift, to buy each loved one. We know that uh, that is a labor of love. We want to show those around us that we do love and appreciate them. God, as we make the purchase of these gifts, remind us of the greatest gift of all that can't be bought. And it's the gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you gave. So Lord, may our focus be upon Him. And Lord, as we are out and about this Christmas season, also we will be distracted by many things that can take us away from the true meaning. And I pray, God, that you would help us to not allow that to happen. I pray that this Christmas season would be a season of the year in which our devotion to you would not lessen, but it would grow. And Father, this morning I pray that everyone within the sound of my voice would understand the magnitude of your gift and what motivated it, your love. Indeed, the greatest love story the world has ever known. And if there's even one here today who has not responded in repentance and faith and looked to Christ and Christ alone for salvation, God, that you would work in their lives, even as you did in the book of Acts in Lydia, when the, when the Bible says that you opened her heart to believe in the Lord Jesus, or that you would open hearts today that people would be saved. And that those who have made that decision would be deeply burdened about those in our circle of influence who do not yet know. God, give us boldness and courage to tell. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1597, William Shakespeare first published what has become the classic love story of all time. And that, of course, would be the story of Romeo and Juliet. I'm sure that in English literature in high school, uh, most of us had to read Romeo and Juliet. Now, for those who know the story, bear with me as I summarize For many years, an ongoing feud between two families had caused a great deal of disruption in the city of Verona, Italy. The Capulets and the Montagues could not get along and there had been many deaths because of this feud. Now as the stage opens, Romeo, a Montague, enters. He's recently been denied the love of his life, Rosaline. And he's miserable over this. His friend and cousin enters and decides that they will go to the Capulet feast in disguise so he can prove to Romeo that there are other fish in the sea. Well, at the feast, Romeo meets Juliet... And it is nothing short of love at first sight. Eventually they decide to marry and they enlist the help of Friar Lawrence who agrees to marry them in hopes that the marriage will finally end the ongoing feud between the two families. Now later that afternoon, Tybalt, the nephew of Lady Capulet, enters. He meets Romeo and starts a fight with him because he learns that Romeo, again a Montague, has gone to the Capulet feast. A friend of Romeo's is outraged by Tybalt's challenge of Romeo and fights him in a duel. Tybalt kills the friend and in return Romeo kills him. And so as punishment, Romeo is exiled from Verona. Now, in hiding, he's ready to commit suicide, but Friar Lawrence convinces him to go to Juliet and at least say goodbye. Well, meanwhile, it's been arranged for Juliet to marry another, Paris, or Paris. She refuses, but her father prevails, and the wedding is set. Friar Lawrence gives Juliet a potion that will make her appear dead, They all have a funeral for Juliet, and she's laid in a tomb in a mausoleum. Romeo hears of Juliet's death, and tragically, he's not been told that Juliet is not really dead and that the potion will soon wear off. Romeo buys a vial of uh, poison, goes to the tomb of Juliet. There he encounters Paris, who was to marry Juliet, Romeo kills Paris, then drinks his own poison, and he dies alongside of Juliet. Just then, Juliet awakens from her potion, sees Romeo dead, kisses him, and plunges his sword into herself and dies there with him. When the grieving families discover what has happened, Friar Lawrence explains everything and the Capulets and the Montagues agree that the pain they've caused has been too great and from now on the family feud will be over. 
Well, as I mentioned, Romeo and Juliet. I suppose the classic love story of all times. But not really. You see, this morning from John 3.16, I want you to see and understand what is really the greatest love story known to man. Now, as we look at John 3.16 this morning, we see a verse that has been described as the gospel in a nutshell or as the most exquisite flower in the garden of Holy Scripture. John 3.16 answers a number of the isms of our day. In response to atheism, there's the phrase, for God. In response to fatalism, which says that God doesn't love us or care anything about us, it says, for God so loved. The phrase that he gave responds to materialism which says it is more blessed to receive than to give. The phrase believes in him responds to pluralism which would have us believe there are many ways to God. And the phrase shall not perish responds to annihilationism that says we'll just simply cease to exist one day. Now folks, in this passage we learn about a God who loves us and we see a God who is not out to to destroy us but to save us even at his own expense. Now first of all this morning I want you to notice with me from the first phrase the, the statement of God's love, for God so loved the world. Here we see the expression of God's love. Think with me this morning about how much God loves the lost sinner. Now folks, there are many texts that we could turn to in the Bible and talk about the love of God, but I suppose one of the the classic texts in the New Testament would have to be uh, Luke chapter 15. In Luke 15, Jesus is telling a series of parables to help us to understand how much God loves the lost sinner and how Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now each of those parables in Luke 15 tells us what the context is that Jesus was dining with publicans and prostitutes and sinners and when the religious establishment looked at who he was associating with they held him in disdain because of that. And so the Lord Jesus told these parables and in the first parable he told the story of a man who has a hundred sheep and 99 of them are safe in the fold but one of them is not and so he puts the 99 in charge of others under him and he goes out and tirelessly seeks for that one lost sheep until he finds it. When he finds it he puts it on his shoulder and he comes home rejoicing and he calls for others to rejoice with him. And then there's a lady who has a a coin collection of ten coins. Supposedly maybe a wedding gift, a headdress or a necklace that would be given at weddings and made up of these ten precious coins and she discovers one day that one of them is missing and so she lights a lantern and, and searches her house, moves the furniture around and sweeps her house clean until she finds this lost coin. And again she calls for a celebration. 
And then there's a story of the two, the two sons, a father who had two sons. And one of them was a prodigal and went to the far country. And, and one day he woke up and he understood what he had done. And he said, I'll rise and go back to my father. And, and instead of finding a father that rejected him, he found a father that was there with open arms ready to receive him. And so what we see in that chapter is a great chapter about the extent of the love of God. The expression of the love of God. And who is this God who loves? He's none other than in Genesis 1.1 Elohim. The, the name of God that signifies his might in creation. He's Yahweh the covenant keeping God. He's Adonai, the Lord of his people. He's Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides for our needs. Or, or uh, Jehovah Rapha, the God who heals our hurts. He's the God that Isaiah got a vision of one day in the temple. And when he caught that fresh glimpse of God, he cried out, Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. Isaiah thought he was going to die when he encountered this God. And there the cherubim were flying around uh, uh, saying, uh, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. It is this God who loves the world. Folks, we see in the Bible that the love of God is the greatest driving force in all the world. There's a, a beautiful scarlet thread of redemption that runs from Genesis all the way through Revelation and it climaxes in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. God works to bring about man's redemption. Why? Why does God do that? Well, again, verse 16 tells us why it says, For God so loved the world. Now, this was such a novel idea to the pagan world at that time. You see, they had all kinds of gods. Gods of war, gods of peace, gods of lust. Gods of land, gods of sea. It was here a God, there a God, everywhere a God, God. But nowhere could they have conceived of any of their gods ever loving them. But the Bible says here, for God so loved the world. The one true and living God loves for God so loved, let's do a little grammar lesson here. The verb is a first aorist active indicative verb. It's not an ingressive aorist which would suggest a time that God began to love. The, the verb is also not a cumulative aorist which would indicate a time when God will decide to love. Instead it's a constative aorist which emphasizes God's eternal constant love. And let's even consider that little word so. One Greek lexicon calls it a demonstrative adverb. Another calls it an adverb of degree. It could be translated for God so loved the world in such an intense manner. In other words, God's love is not a trickling stream. It's like the mighty Mississippi. It's not like a leaky faucet. It's like Niagara Falls. 
Now think about this. The sovereign God of the universe loves us. I think of that hymn, the love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. What a wonderful song. Folks, why church? Why missions? Why Lottie Moon? For God so loved the world. Look at the extent of God's love. God so loved the world. It speaks of all classes of of rich and, and, and poor alike. God's not a respecter of persons. Isaiah 55 says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's like the song that says Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red, yellow, black, and white. They're precious in His sight. And the Bible points out that God loved us even before we were born. As He said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1, before you were formed in the womb, I knew you. People think they've got to earn God's love. But God loved you before you were born and before you'd done a single thing. He loved you and has a plan for your life. The statement of God's love. We'll look secondly at the showing of God's love. The demonstration that is of God's love. He, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In other words, God's love was not an empty statement. God loved and so he gave. 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this that he laid down his life for us. Folks, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. You see, by its very nature, love is giving. Now, love certainly touches the emotions. But love is more than an emotion. It's a decision. You marry someone and stay with them even though they chew their toenails in bed. Love is a decision, it's a, it's a choice and it gives. The Bible says God so loved the world and so what did he do? He gave his son and, and he gave his only begotten son. That phrase only begotten son means his unique son. There has never been anybody like the Lord Jesus and never will be. You see he is the God man, fully God and fully human. He is God's unique son, his only begotten son. There's nobody else like him. And God gave his best for you. You are created in the image of God and you are not redeemed with cheap things like silver and gold, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of the Lamb of God. God sent his son years ago I gave you an illustration that still fits so powerfully. An illustration of of poor theology. 
There was a young man at a revival and he was listening to the preacher preach and on the podium the preacher had a, a, a little glass, a china glass and he said this glass represents you and here's this hammer and this hammer is the wrath of God raised against sin and he raised that hammer up and he went to smash the glass and right at the last minute he moved a frying pan in and he hit the frying pan instead and he held it up and the frying pan was dented and he said See, look at this frying pan. This represents Jesus. And the little boy was troubled by that illustration. Because it seemed in his mind that somehow or another the father and the son were at contrary purposes with one another. And Jesus got in the way of God's wrath at just the right moment. Otherwise, he'd have been smashed and, 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 and that bothered him. I say it's poor theology because the theology of the New Testament and certainly the theology of John chapter 3 is for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The father and son are not at contrary purposes to one another. They are the Trinity, the members of the Trinity are, are perfectly united in your redemption and my redemption. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave. It doesn't even say that he tolerated his son to come to earth or that simply he allowed it. It says rather he gave. The showing of God's love. Well, thirdly I want you to notice with me the spirit of God's love. Pick up reading with me again. He says that he gave his only son that, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. There is a reason for the gift. The reason is so that men might believe and be saved. That's the spirit. That's the intent behind the gift. Think of those words that whosoever believes. God loves the world, but it's also personal. Whosoever. You can put your name in that spot. Along with that phrase that whosoever believes appears the same word used in 2 Timothy 3.16 to say that all scripture is inspired by God. In other words, we don't pick and choose which parts are inspired and which are not. And so the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 adds a little word in before the graphe, the writings, uh, to say that all scripture is inspired. It's the little word pas, P-A-S is the way that, that we would write it out. To emphasize that every single portion of the word of God, the whole of it and every individual element of it is God-breed. It's inspired by God. It is the same word that is used here with the phrase, the one believing, whosoever believes. John puts that little word in pos beforehand. Now folks, it seems to me that the hyper-Calvinist could legitimately be a little uncomfortable at this point. You see, on the one hand, he reads 2 Timothy 3.16 and correctly argues forcefully of the importance of pos. 
in the text emphasizing the inspiration of Scripture, all of Scripture. On the other hand, he turns to John 3.16 and somehow wants to shift the, the meaning of the next phrase, the one believing to limit the opportunity only to the elect. And so for the Calvinist, all of those believing becomes not so much an invitation verse, but an assurance verse. In other words, all of those among the elect will most assuredly receive eternal life and not perish. Now while that's certainly correct to say that God will certainly save all of those who believe and those believing are among the elect, nonetheless the Calvinist model appears to me to introduce an extra layer into the text of John 3.16 which one would not get from a natural reading of the text. The natural reading of the text, as one writer put it, is a welcome mat for the world. The natural reading is not that it simply serves as a promise to the elect as wonderful as that is and as true as it is but it's rather simply an invitation to whosoever. It might be interesting to note that not even John Calvin nor Jonathan Edwards nor Augustine believed in limited atonement as limited atonement is taught today. Folks, there's no conflict between God's initiative and man's response. Both truths are taught so clearly in the Bible. And that's what we see here. The subject has been God. God so loves that God gives. And now the subject is man. Man believes. God calls us to trust his son. That's the spirit behind the gift. Somebody asked Jesus on one occasion, and what is the will of God? And Jesus responded, the will of God is this. That you believe in the name of God's only begotten Son. God's intent in sending the Lord Jesus is that you might have eternal life and not perish. Think of that word perish in the text. It's a word strong enough to make any of us surely tremble. It's the, uh, it's the other side. Uh, it, it's the revelation of the other side of God's character. He's not only a God of immeasurable love, but he's also a God of infinite holiness and justice. Now, what's that mean? Somebody once asked Charles Spurgeon about a problem text. They said, Spurgeon, what does it mean? He said, it's easy what it means. It means what it says. Perish means what it says. Perish means that we die not only physically, but we die spiritually. We forfeit the right to have eternal life and we choose death and hell instead. But God gave his son that this could be avoided. People are going to end up in hell. In fact, Jesus said the road to hell is broad and, and many travel it. But nobody could ever say, God sent me to hell. Verse 17, Christ says he didn't come to judge but to save. Now later on he's going to say he came to judge. Those two thoughts are easy to reconcile in the scripture. Christ didn't come in his first advent to judge but he came to save. But since salvation is only through Jesus Christ, the flip side of that coin is true also. 
If you reject Jesus Christ, you reject any opportunity of being eternally saved. Somebody's made the analogy of the sun. The sun does not shine in order to cast a shadow. But the casting of shadows necessarily happens because of the side of an object that does not receive the light. Salvation isn't automatic. People must believe Jesus came to die for you. That, that implies that you and I need, we desperately need what only Christ can give. You go to the mall this afternoon and you ask people in surveys, why did Jesus come? So many would just simply say something like, came to be a humanitarian example. But folks, it's so much more than that. Jesus Christ came to redeem us. 1 Peter 3.18 says, the just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God. There's an exchange that had to take place foreshadowed in the Old Testament. You and I are sinners. We've sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the Bible says the wages of sin is death. There's no way we can save ourselves. And that means Jesus did for me and you what we could never do for ourselves. We need to be born again. We need to be redeemed. We need to be reconciled to holy God. We need to, to, we need to be made right in a state of peace with God instead of a state of enmity. And it's much more than simply becoming a church member or being religious. The new birth is something God does from the inside out. John Wesley came to understand that one day. He was deeply religious, grew up in a religious family. His ethics and his morals were impeccable. He went to a church service at Aldersgate one evening. A service he didn't really want to go to. But he said as he sat there and he heard the preacher reading the introduction to Luther's introduction to the book of Romans. His eyes were opened. His heart was opened. And he understood for the first time what Christ had really done for him. And he said a peace flooded over his soul. And he was a transformed man. And he was never the same after that. That's the spirit behind God's love that we would be born again. And that's what Jesus had said to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Now lastly, look with me at the spurning of God's love. The spurning of God's love. There in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. When God's Son stepped off the throne of this universe the first time and came down to earth, it was God's love He came to reveal. His purpose was was not to condemn but to save, but let no one despise the grace of God. When He steps off the throne of the universe the next time to come down to earth, it'll be God's wrath He comes to reveal. 
And in fact, to refuse to believe means that you don't even have to wait for the judgment. You don't have to wait till you die or until Christ returns, whichever comes first. The text says, if you don't believe, you're already under the judgment of God. And your death or the second coming of Christ is only going to ratify the condition that you're currently in. What a great text that lights come into the world. In the Old Testament, people saw the light, the Shekinah glory of God among them. Listen to what Nelson's dictionary, how it describes the Shekinah glory of God. It was a visible manifestation of the presence of God. It refers to the instances when God showed himself visibly, as for example on Mount Sinai, and in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple. The Shekinah was a luminous cloud which rested above the altar in the place of worship and lit up the room. When the Babylonians destroyed the temple, the Shekinah glory vanished. There was no Shekinah in the temples rebuilt later under Zerubbabel and King Herod. The people longed for the Shekinah glory of God to return. They waited centuries for that. In Zechariah 2.10 it says, I will cause my Shekinah to dwell in the midst of thee. They were waiting for that again. And in Luke 2.9 at the birth of Jesus, we're told that the angel appeared to them and this great light shone around them. The glory of the Lord shone on them. You see, in Jesus Christ, the Shekinah glory of God appeared once again in the midst of his people. Now what do you think would be the response of that? Everybody would run to that. They had waited for that. But the Bible says no, 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 no. Instead of running to that light, what do men do? They recoil back. They get away. Why? Because their deeds are evil. They love darkness rather than light. Herod would be a perfect case in point. King Herod. When the light of the world was born at Bethlehem, what did Herod try to do? He tried to extinguish the light. He was a wicked man. He murdered his wife's brother. He murdered his favorite wife. Imagine if you weren't his favorite. He murdered his sons. He gave the instruction that on the day that he died, what they were to do is they were to go throughout the city and they were to kill all the prominent citizens when he breathed his last breath, they would go out and they would kill all these citizens so that in the city on the day Herod died, there would be weeping and mourning. What did he do with the wise men? Sent them out to find the Lord Jesus so he could kill him. When the angel said, go back another way, and Herod learned that he had been fooled, what did he do? He had all the Male children, two years of age and younger, killed. A wicked, wicked man. He tried to extinguish the light. 
Well, just like Herod, men still choose darkness because their deeds are evil. They're content with their sin. To come to the light would mean that they would first of all be exposed as sinners. And men don't wish to admit this. They want to convince themselves that they're not that bad after all, especially compared with other people. The light also exposes their acts as being contrary to what God desires. They don't like their deeds being exposed any more than they like their heart condition being exposed. To be exposed means that they need to change. They need to repent. They don't want to do that. Their basic heart condition is they love darkness they they want to rule their own life and destiny they're quite happy in their materialism they're quite happy in their lying and stealing and cheating they're quite happy in their adulteries they don't want to come to the light and change that's the whole point in in a new book by Joseph, by, by James Spiegel, the making of an atheist, how immorality leads to unbelief. He makes the argument in there that a lot of the arguments that Christians make to atheists, a lot of the Christian apologists give intellectual reasoned arguments for the existence of God and, and thank God for those apologists who do that. But he makes the point in this book there's a whole section of atheists that are being missed. There's a whole section of atheists who don't care one iota about the intellectual arguments. They're too intellectually apathetic and complacent to even care about intellectual arguments for or against the existence of God. They want to hide behind atheism so they can just keep smoking their dope and drinking their liquor and sleeping around. But they need something to hide behind. They need a label to hide behind so they can continue to do all that and justify it. It's not a matter of the intellect. Again, they don't even care about the intellectual arguments. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the will. They don't want to believe. They just want some label to hide behind. That's exactly what he's saying here. The light has shown. The light has arrived. Men can see it. Men know all about it. But they they despise the light. They don't come to the light because their deeds are evil. And they don't want to be exposed. And they don't want to have to change. But look at what he goes on to say in verse 21. What a beautiful verse 21 is. He says, the one who does what is true comes to the light. Now, we would expect him to say the one telling the truth comes to the light. But it's more powerful than that. It's not just the one telling the truth. It's the one doing the truth. You see, truth is not something we just simply say. It's something we live. It's more encompassing than just our words. 
He says such a man's not afraid to come to the light. He's not afraid to lay his life before God because he wants the approval of God more than man. He's not afraid of conviction and change. He wants this. He wants God to form him and shape him more and more each day in the image of Christ. So he comes to the light. He's eager. And God does what he promises. Now, let's go back to the story of Romeo and Juliet a minute. Things are not always as they appear. Juliet was not dead. She was only sleeping. She was waiting on her beloved Romeo. If only he would have known. If only somebody could have told him. Would have told him. If only Friar Lawrence would have gotten to him in time. What might that piece of information done? It would have changed everything. They could have lived happily ever after. But Romeo didn't know. What a tragedy. It didn't have to end that way. Folks, this morning, you and I cannot claim ignorance. We've read it together. We've studied it. You've heard it before. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You know. And if you've responded to that in faith and trust, your situation can be exactly like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 where he said, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory. Hearing. Believing. Just like David said earlier, someone sent, preaching, hearing, believing, being saved. That can be your story. Again, you can't claim ignorance. I didn't know. That won't wash anymore. You do know. What have you done with the light of the world? The greatest love story known to man. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for a verse that makes it so clear. Again, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work on hearts. And that person who's not surrendered has not come to the light. God, I pray that you would do your work of salvation, of conversion on their hearts. May this Christmas season be a time of the year. A time of great rejoicing for them. 
Because they finally understand the love of God in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. In just a minute we're going to stand our hymn of invitation. And I'll be down here to pray with any who need Christ. Maybe God's been convicting you. You need to come to the light. I'd like to pray with you. For others who've made that decision, maybe you just simply want to come to this altar and pray for somebody in your life who is not yet saved. And you'd say, God, give me a burden for souls. That in the season when we celebrate the light of the world, that I would tell people around me about the light of the world.